that there were two professors in the department who had been there in 1939. And, and both Ben said, hands down, Kenny Washington was the far better athlete to Jackie Robinson. And that kind of took me by surprise. And Artie said in his, when he was a high school baseball coach and teacher, uh, there was a PE coach at his high school who had been a teammate. He had been on that 39 UCLA football team. And that this guy was in, not a boastful guy. He wasn't one of these guys always throwing around a lot of hyperbole. But, but he said very matter-of-factly, Kenny Washington was far better than Jackie Robinson. Well, you know, that's all I needed to hear. That got me doing the deep dive. And to learn about this guy uh, was absolutely amazing. Uh, I, was, I was completely overwhelmed. Uh, by just how good he was, just how popular he was in Los Angeles, far and away the most popular athlete in Southern California uh, during the 30s and 40s. Um, and it was just uh, emotional to see, you know, what could have been uh, had America been different at that time. Join me, Jeremy Swick, on Into the Unknown, a podcast that delves into the personal journeys, stories, and experiences of individuals across diverse professions. As a historian by trade, I firmly believe that our personal histories shape our present and offer valuable insights into our paths ahead. With that being said, let's get into it. On this episode of Into the Unknown, I am joined with a very special guest, Dan Taylor. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. It's good to be with you. You know, I really appreciate you taking the time and, you know, I can't complain. It's almost the holidays and I'm just excited for both of us to be here. Well, it's always good to talk uh, football and, and in this case, particularly uh, Katie Washington, uh, you know, someone that I, I have this great admiration for and uh, just a tremendous, tremendous story. And it was an honor to be involved with uh, telling his story. I couldn't agree more for those who are watching. I'm going to stand up a little bit, but I have my NFL Kenny uh, Washington shirt. You know, um, I was fortunate to talk to the guy who created it the other day, and uh, hopefully he'll be joining the podcast soon as well. Terrific. So I'll start the show off with networking and talking about the importance. How did we get acquainted? Well, we got acquainted through a, a friend of yours who uh, is a great Kenny Washington admirer, and, and he sent to me something that he had put together, which I thought was fascinating. It, it was a, a, a correlation of, of not just the career, but the life of both Kenny Washington and his UCLA teammate, uh, Jackie Robinson, and, and just a number of very interesting uh, things that uh, occurred uh, throughout their, their careers and their life. And then... Uh, he, he later mentioned you, your podcast, and, and thought this would be, a, you know, a, a fun connection to make. Uh, and I wholeheartedly agreed. And it was exciting what he did. And he has since sent me an article, uh, a terrific piece that he wrote about the unsung and, and, and not remembered uh, member of the uh, 39 UCLA undefeated football team. And that was Johnny Wynn. Um, in my research on, on Kenny, I found a lot of stuff that was, was inaccurate uh, about that season, about Kenny about that team. And, and one of the, the common things was that there were only four African-Americans on that 39 which was significant. Don't get me wrong. That was significant. But in truth, there were five. And, and Johnny Wynn uh, played a big part in that season. He made a, a goal line tackle late in, 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 I believe it was the Washington State game to preserve the undefeated record. And, uh, and, and in many cases, he is not remembered uh, in history of, of that season. So I was delighted to see that that was uh, written about and uh, and hopefully uh, he'll be able to land that in some publication to to further publicize that 
I really hope so. You know, Jason's been a great guy I've met. Uh, it's funny we talk about Johnny Wayne. We'll get more into it, but I just picked up, a, I believe, a 1938 yearbook from UCLA, and of course he's in it, and he's in the 40 year, you know, the, that yearbook as well. And so it's uh, one of those guys that's very interesting that he wasn't uh, wasn't mentioned and isn't really widely talked about, you know. And probably because he was not one of the starters. The the other four were starters, and and were you know, central players. Um, and I think what, what probably threw people off, we may be digressing here, but still, I think it's important. What probably threw people off was a note in one of the Los Angeles papers early in that 39 season saying that Wynn had left the team. And they never followed up on the fact that two weeks later he came back. And in researching, it appeared to me, Wynn had been a, had worked as a, uh, a porter on the uh, Los Angeles to Chicago and back route uh, on the rail. And it appeared to me that he was summoned for one last run. And that was why he had to leave the team uh, for a couple of weeks. Uh, but once he returned, uh, played significant minutes and, and uh, had some important contributions. I could not agree more. We'll get into that a little bit later because I already can feel myself having 30 million <laughs> thoughts on that, but we'll, we'll get into it. Good. I want to know that comic book issue origin story. Who are you and where are you from? I live in Fresno, California, born and raised here in the, in the hometown of Tom Seaver, uh, Jim Maloney, and many, many others. Uh, uh, television sportscaster uh, by trade. Uh, did that for 30 years here on the local ABC uh, station. Um, and when I left, uh, writing was one of the things that that attracted me. I, I went into corporate uh, PR uh, for 10 years, retired now. Uh, uh, Katie Washington Project was my fifth book. I'm now working on number seven. Um, and it was just a different form of storytelling. Uh, I think in a, in a television sportscast, you're, you're given two minutes. And when you get 250 pages, it allows you to go a little bit deeper on a story. So it's, it was a lot of fun. It was, it, was, it was a significant transition, a big learning curve. Uh, but I find that I, I greatly enjoy it. I love the research, uh, love storytelling, love sports. So the three of them come together into uh, something that I'm very passionate about continuing. Dan, I love that. I'm curious, what what got you into that broadcasting sphere to begin with? Well, that's a good question. I think it's uh, uh, kind of interesting, but I was really, uh, the sports bug bit me thanks to a grandfather, uh, my maternal grandfather, who was an immigrant from Scotland. And, and here was this guy who uh, loved soccer, uh, but came here. And because he arrived in the U.S. with his parents and was underage, he had graduated from high school in Scotland in a suburb of Glasgow. Uh, but when he came here, because he was under 18, they told him that uh, he would have to go back to school. He had not completed American history and would have to go back to school. And he, he said that one of the things, well, there were, he had two goals uh, in having to go back to school. One was to learn all these American sports that just seemed so crazy to him. And the other was to learn to trade. And uh, so his love of sports uh, was something very important that he passed on to me and uh, taking me to San Francisco Giants games in the summertime and, and uh, you know, talking sports a lot. And that's where I really got bit. Uh, you know, I think uh, something I enjoyed was listening to baseball on the radio growing up, and that that probably planted a seed somewhere. 
And uh, I, I often joked, although I, I think it's a lot more serious than a joke, that, you know, I love playing sports as a kid, but I found that I could probably talk about it better uh, than I could uh, could play it. So that kind of steered me at a pretty young age in the direction of wanting to get into broadcasting. Um, my early ambition was play-by-play, uh, something that I've only now in retirement really had the time to be able to pursue uh, doing some of the games, both TV and a little bit of radio for our minor league baseball team here in Fresno, the, the Grizzlies, and uh, and doing some high school football on the local cable. So, yeah, it, it was a fun run, covered some amazing uh, uh, some amazing accomplishments, tremendous athletes uh, coming out of Fresno, you know, uh, guys from Icky Woods, uh, uh, Bobby Jones, so many guys that went on to have success and, and teams that had tremendous success. Fresno State basketball winning the NIT. Uh, I broadcast their semifinal game from Madison Square Garden, which was quite a thrill. So, yeah, I was very, very fortunate to uh, be involved in covering sports here in Fresno during a really magical time when the the teams here, the university and the professional uh, setting here in Fresno really grew uh, and and won some remarkable championships. That's really interesting. So out of curiosity, I know a lot of times with broadcasting, we've had a few – anchors and uh, you know different news people on here was that your first job or did you have to bounce around and travel all over no that was i actually in high school managed to put together my own radio show my senior year in high school uh, went in bought some airtime from a, a small station and uh, would put together a high school football highlight show um, so that was kind of my first step into it and then my uh, sophomore year at Fresno State, uh, I, actually my senior year in high school, I also became the public address announcer for the minor league ball club in Fresno. At that time, it was a San Francisco Giants affiliate and uh, befriended many of the sportscasters in town through that role. And my sophomore year in high school, uh, the sportscaster at the station I ultimately went to work for um, asked me if I wanted to come in and help him out covering high school football on Friday nights. And then that grew uh, into other opportunities within that company. And that's where I worked for 30 years. That's incredible. Very fortunate, very blessed. Especially, you know, in sports and broadcasting, that's a dream I'm sure, you know, a, a lot of kids have growing up and it's amazing. You're able to literally make a career out of it. And, you know, over 30, that's incredible. Very fortunate. Absolutely. Out of curiosity, do you have any uh, a top moment or two that you would like to share about, you know, a highlight from that experience? Wow, that's tough. There's so many fun ones. I, I think, uh, you know, growing up, uh, my dad taking me to Fresno State football games uh, at a time when they were really more like a Division II program, beating, uh, you know, playing schools like uh, the, a lot of schools in California that don't even have football anymore, Cal State Hayward. Cal State, uh, Los Angeles, schools like that. And then uh, the program growing to a point where uh, with a quarterback by the name of Trent Dilfer at the at the helm and a few other players, Lorenzo Neal, who played in the NFL, uh, they defeated USC. And it was such a high point in this community. It was a, it was an exciting time in this community. To, to the, That victory is still talked about very fondly. Um, but for, for many of us who had been around Fresno State sports, uh, uh, to have it grow to that point. I remember uh, the the day following, uh, prior to the game, the day prior to the game, they had a big luncheon there in Anaheim, and uh, it was the Freedom Bowl down in Los Angeles, uh, in Anaheim at that time. And Henry Eller to the Rams uh, was brought in as the star Fresno State football alumnus. Mike Garrett was the USC alumnus at this luncheon. 
and and Henry and I had a really good relationship. Uh, we went to the same high school, a few years apart, of course. But um, and I was talking to Henry after the luncheon, and, and I said, "Can you believe these guys are playing USC?" I mean, I, I remember going to games when they played Cal State Hayward and you know, people like that. And he said, "Dan, my freshman, my first couple of years, I was in. I played in games with Cal State Hayward. So no, I, I, this is really hard to believe. We've we've reached this level, and then to go out and, and win the game and beat USC, it was it was quite a moment. And I think the NIT." that season really captivated this community as well. Uh, you know, huge crowds would gather at the airport when the team came home after each of the rounds. Um, and of course the New York, I think there were more than 2000 people from Fresno went to New York for the semifinals. And then the final, when they defeated DePaul to win the NIT. So it, it, I think nationally that might be looked at as kind of a, a second tier event, the NIT, but here it, it still held uh, that 83 NIT championship as it was a pretty special moment. So to be part of that and to cover that, uh, you know, really meant a lot. In, in 1988, Fresno State baseball was ranked number one in the country. They had three first-round draft picks that tied the University of Michigan for a record. Uh, Tom Goodwin, Eddie Zosky, the shortstop, Steve Hosey, the, one of the outfielders. And uh, I had grown up just a few houses down from the head coach, Bob Bennett, uh, a college baseball legend who's in the College Baseball Hall of Fame. And so to, to go back and, and cover that uh, was also a very special time. So very, I'm very blessed to have the opportunity to, to be associated with those events. Dan, I love that you mentioned that. And one of those things, I think sports, being in sports, you know, I was fortunate to be at the Pro Football Hall of Fame and I was the historian and curator at the College Football Hall of Fame for a number of years how much sports can mean to a community, whether it's good, bad, indifferent. A lot of times it's just you remember where you were when your team won. I mean, I was back, you know, I, I won't go into too many stories, but just I had flown back from Atlanta to Milwaukee and when the Bucks won the finals and I was there for that. For game six, I was down in the Deer District and stayed for the parade. And it's just there's such a special moment with sports that it's really hard to explain to maybe people are on, people on the outside, you know. Well, you're right. And similarly here in Fresno, for example, uh, you go into auto racing, which is very big around here. And, and uh, my dad and my uncle, they, they were able to recite chapter and verse of what they were doing the moment that Bill Vukovic, the, the great Indy racer, was killed in 1955 in Indianapolis. And I became friends with his son and, and his grandson. And I was able to cover his grandson the three years that he raced in the Indy 500. And it was really kind of a, it was a very special time to to, to be part of that slice of local history here. So yeah, exactly what you say, sports, it, it's really part of a, the DNA of, of, of a community, uh, especially people who have been in a community for a long time and they really embrace uh, those memories and those great moments. Absolutely. You know. On everyone's journey, everyone's path, there's a chance where we can go east, we can go west. You make a decision not really knowing the outcome. Can you give me a time you did that? Yeah, uh, 2008, October, uh, had an opportunity to write something I had never, long writing was not something, uh, you know, I, I'm really uh, hesitant to admit it uh, other than close friends, because I know a lot of people have this ambition to write a book. And that was never mine. I, I never thought about long writing and the opportunity to make a transition from from television to uh, long writing presented itself. And it was a very difficult decision to make. Um, it was a very emotional time, uh, really wrestling with with the, the approach to take and uh, ultimately decided that, uh, you know, things 
were presenting itself the way they were, then there was a reason behind it. Uh, one of those that, that always believes in that. And uh, so I decided to pursue it, but it was a very difficult decision. Um, consulted three extremely close friends about it, and, and each one said, oh, you got to do this. Uh, so, yeah, it was writing was not something long writing, I should say, was not something I ever dreamed of doing because it's so opposite of broadcast writing. Broadcast writing, you're, you're writing in phrases. You know, it's really it's quick. It, it, it supports your breathing patterns, your, your speech patterns. Um, it's not at all like long writing. And uh, never in my wildest dreams did I, did I think about doing that. But uh, a good friend of mine, a guy named Tom Watt over in England, uh, he had written David Beckham's autobiography, um, and he connected me with his agent, uh, and the agent was excited about a topic that uh, was discussed. And, you know, without even my agreeing to be represented at that point, he had a meeting with a, a publisher the next day and and brought up the idea for this book, and the publisher jumped at it. And then the, the agent called me and said, we've got this opportunity, and, and uh, it was... It just, you know, created a few days of deep, deep emotions, a very, very difficult time. Uh, but uh, I, I made that transition. I'm glad I did. Um, yeah, it, it was a good time to make the transition. And, and I find that, as I said earlier, I really, really enjoy long writing. I enjoy the storytelling, the creative expression that way, uh, the research that goes into it. And, and uh, yeah, I, I'm certainly very happy that I made that transition. Absolutely. You know, I wrote I wrote my college master's thesis on college football stadiums in the 1920s, Ooh. looking at memorial stadiums at Illinois, Indiana and Minnesota. Just the, uh, you know, the idea that they were student led and student funded. And a lot of times we kind of look at the world a little bit more cynically. But in, in those times, especially universe or the students really wanted to give back to their universities. So, you know, they had the memorial gardens and benches. And I think a lot of it was that that a little bit of ego on both sides. You know, the students, oh, we want to give instead of this bench, let's do a memorial stadium. And of course, administration, as I found through letters and correspondence, they weren't dumb either. You know, a student led project that big. Seems like a really good idea if they can, you know, pat pat them on the back and, uh, you know, do all that. But it was one of those things where I kind of fell in love with the research, really fell in love with the research and, you know, the, the, the deep into college football. That's fascinating. I, I didn't realize that. That's really interesting. I could uh, I could talk about those three stadiums, uh, you know, at nausea sometimes. But, it, you know, it's all fun and it's, it's great to, again, be around you know, like-minded sports enthusiasts from time to time. That's great. That's great. I want to know, you know, the title of the podcast, Into the Unknown. What are you stepping on? What are you working on? What I'm working on now? What's the old line? If I tell you, I have to kill you. <laughs> well, a book that came out a few months back was called Baseball at the Abyss, story of the 1926 scandal that really has never really been uh, given a lot of attention, but it involved Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker, two Hall of Famers, and their involvement in, in fixing and betting on games. And then uh, it evolved into uh, work that Babe Ruth did that same offseason to resurrect his, his struggling career uh, that produced his biggest season ever. And, and really, a, a lot of people felt the workout uh, routine that he adopted that offseason was very revolutionary and maybe his greatest contribution to the game. It's something that players today all do. And so, yeah, it, it was, it was a fun 
project to get into, especially when I stumbled onto the fact that the the scandal emanated about 10 miles from my house at a, a player by the name of Dutch Leonard, uh, who I had heard of, but really didn't know a lot about. And so I uh, took a deep dive into him and, and uh, yeah, it was really fascinating. And, and what I'm tinkering with now is a biography of the first great black golfer in America, Ted Rhodes, uh, a golfer in the 40s and 50s, who you know, really overcame uh, tremendous odds and great discrimination to be able to achieve success in golf. It was the first African-American to play in the U.S. Open, uh, the first to play in a PGA event. And, and he, along with the boxer Joe Lewis, led the charge to uh, overturn the PGA's Caucasians only clause and, and see professional golf integrated. Uh, and, and many people felt that, you know, had Rhodes uh, been afforded the opportunity at a younger age to become a professional uh, and, and the opportunity to play at country clubs with much tougher courses than muni courses, uh, then he really may have been one of the greatest of all time. Uh, and he was an outstanding golfer nonetheless, but uh, it's a, it's been a fascinating research project and, and uh, just amazing to learn about him, considering I, I knew nothing about him up until a couple of months ago. And I love that. You know, it's always diving right into that research and just it's impressive what you can learn just looking back at history, uh, you know, how, how it affects today even. I always say that, uh, you know, while history probably doesn't repeat itself, it often, you know, looks very familiar. You're right. That's a, that's a good way to put it. You're absolutely right. So something I want to dive into now. Your book on Kenny Washington. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Well, what was really surprising was that nothing had ever been done on Kenny Washington before. Uh, you know, when I uh, touched base with the, the acquisitions editor I work with at Roman and Littlefield, that was her response. She said, "Wait a minute, are you telling me no one's ever done this? Any, done anything on this guy?" And and uh, we were both really surprised. And I've heard that a lot uh, since the book has come out. Um, I was, I had heard of Kenny Washington, uh, been to games at UCLA. My brother worked at UCLA. And so I'd, I'd certainly heard about him. I knew his number had been retired, but I didn't know a lot more than that about him. And once I got into it, uh, I was overwhelmed. I mean, I think he's one of the, maybe a small handful of the greatest football players of all time. Uh, and, and he's not talked about because we don't have film, much film of him. Uh, he's not talked about because he, didn't get into the NFL until he was well, really over the hill. Um, and it's, it's, it's a shame. And he's not talked about because he couldn't follow his true passion, which was baseball. And he may have been one of the greatest home run hitters of all time had he been able to, to follow that pursuit. So uh, a great friend of mine, a guy by the name of Artie Harris, he played one of the scouts in the movie Moneyball, Scout Artie, who was always sitting uh, to the left of Brad Pitt. And uh, uh, Artie and I speak all the time. Artie's a UCLA guy, played baseball there in the 50s and uh, taught there in the 60s. And, and we were talking about Jackie Robinson one day, I believe, is how we got onto it. And, and, uh, and Artie said that when he was at UCLA, there were two professors when he was teaching there as a grad student. There were two professors in the department who had been there in 1939. And, and both Ben said, hands down, Kenny Washington was the far better athlete to Jackie Robinson. And that kind of took me by surprise. And Artie said in his, when he was a high school baseball coach and teacher, uh, there was a PE coach at his high school who had been a teammate. He had been on that 39 UCLA football team. 
And that this guy was in, not a boastful guy. He wasn't one of these guys always throwing around a lot of hyperbole. But, but he said very matter-of-factly, Kenny Washington was far better than Jackie Robinson. Well, you know, that's all I needed to hear. That got me doing the deep dive. And to learn about this guy was absolutely amazing. Uh, I, was, I was completely overwhelmed uh, by just how good he was, just how popular he was in Los Angeles, far and away the most popular athlete in Southern California, uh, during the thirties and forties. Um, uh, and it was just, uh, emotional to see, you know, what could have been, uh, had America been different at that time. Uh, so I, I, uh, I feel very, very fortunate that I already opened that door, um, met some wonderful people in the research process. Uh, Kenny's family, his daughter, his grandkids, uh, were great. And uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a fascinating life life enriching project. Is there anything that really stuck out in your mind, or is it just, I mean, the whole the whole story, discovering the whole story of Kenny? Well, I think the one thing that jumped out at me was here's a guy who could throw a football a hundred yards in the air, and you know the passing game was not a big part of football at that time. You know, the football of that era was more like the rugby ball we see today, rounded ends, a little fatter. It was not an easy thing to throw. Uh, the football of today is 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 made and geared more for throwing, but it wasn't back then. And you know, here's a guy in high school, uh, uh, Jim Tunney, the great NFL referee. Uh, his father, Jim Senior, was Kenny's high school coach. And and one day uh, in his senior season, he wanted to see if Kenny could in fact throw a football 100 yards. So he put Kenny on one goal line and he put a receiver on the other goal line and the receiver had to come out, uh, I believe it was to the four yard line to make the catch. But I found other instances when Kenny was playing pro ball in the old Pacific Coast Football League, uh, where they said playing for the Hollywood Bears, he did in fact uh, throw a couple of times, throw a football 100 yards in the air. Uh, There was an amazing comeback his sophomore year when they played US, UCLA played USC in their annual big rivalry game in the Coliseum. And and uh, UCLA had had a terrible afternoon. And suddenly, you know, the passing game started clicking and, and Kenny brought UCLA back. And and uh, he threw a, a, a forward pass that it was, you know, it was debated in the press box how long the ball, how far in the air the ball traveled. Some were saying 77 yards. Some were saying closer to 80 yards. Uh, because he'd had to scramble to avoid a rush and circle back. And uh, they, they went in and talked to the officials after the game to find out, you know, get uh, confirmation of where he actually was when he released the ball. And, and they ultimately they had to go to the newsreel photographers and uh, the, the video, I mean, the, the film photographers uh, the next day set up a screening to, to actually look at, at what they had and they were able to pinpoint, I believe it was 73 yards in the air, uh, which was just unheard of at that time. And, uh, you know, some of the leading sports writers of the day, Grantland Rice uh, was the one that proclaimed it was the, the longest pass in college football history. Uh, so that really, on a national scale, kind of started the legend uh, of Kenny Washington. In his senior year, the way he was treated in terms of awards, um, certainly his ethnicity had something to do with it. Uh, but West Coast college football, uh, as we have seen over the decades, uh, night games, uh, they, those types of things really impact uh, your coverage in the East. 
And there was no ESPN Sports Center back then, of course. So finding out about Kenny Washington on the East Coast and in the Deep South uh, and, and in uh, parts of the Midwest, uh, it was very difficult. So uh, while he did get uh, the Fairbanks Award as the 1939 College Football Player of the Year, he was not a finalist for the Heisman. And, and some of that was a lack of exposure. And some of that was the prejudices of, of Southern uh, voters in particular. Absolutely. You know, the more and more research I did on Kenny throughout the years, it's just he's become almost like a, you know, a folk hero in, in a lot of aspects from his acting career to his sports to just kind of from what I understand who he was as a person. And so uh, me leaving the Hall of Fame and kind of going fully into my collector mode, I was able to, you know, acquire some incredible, incredible Kenny Washington pieces. I want to show you just one of them. Ooh, so this interesting. This is from the 1940 All-Star Game. Yeah. Wow. On the back, it has the, let's see. Wow. Of course, it's not going to work when I want it, but it has Kenny Washington <laughs> on the back. Wow, interesting, interesting. And interesting. you know, I won't, I won't go into too much, but I can always appreciate it when someone who is interested is in Kenny as as well as I am. So this is his Lincoln name. High School his letter, nineteen thirty five wow. letter, and wow, um, with that also came the certificate he got very interesting yeah look at that of course you know way too many of his rookie cards his cards yep yeah you know so i've I've been fortunate enough to find some of these things acquire them um it was funny because right before our you know, it's just, again, to go to the lore of Kenny Washington, of course, they had the Golden Gate. Yeah. You know, their version right. of the World's Fair, and he's, it's his, it's Kenny Washington's collegians versus, you know, Ernie's professionals. And he was really the first African-American player that all-star teams were built around. Uh, and he did uh, a few games that way. But, yeah, that was a big game in San Francisco. Uh, we talked about that in the book, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and I won't grab them all, yeah, but I, I have some, not his yearbooks yet, but, uh, you know, I have the 37, I just picked up the 39, and of course the 1941, which is, you know, that one is probably my favorite thing. It's funny because the 37 just got here before before we went on. That's actually, I, I was paging through it, uh, you know, before, but just to see... You know, him, Jackie, you know, Woody Strode and all those guys. Uh, it just was, you know, something, you know, a bit of an honor. And, of course, I see, I know the photos are online, but there's just something about having the book, you know. Oh, you're right. You're on, right. on my you're desk is something I think any yeah. true sports fan or historian can, uh, you know, appreciate and enjoy. Absolutely. And that 3019, there was some terrific talent there. I mean, Woody Strode. Uh, you know, we don't know a lot about him other than Spartacus, but, uh, you know, he was a terrific actor. But at UCLA, he began his first two or three years at UCLA. He was a decathlete. And really, they felt that he was in line to be 
the American decathlete in the 1940 Olympic Games. Had they not been canceled by war, uh, he actually got involved in, in a bit of a spat with the coaches over an injury. Uh, they, he felt they didn't believe that he was hurt as bad as he was, wanted him to compete, and, uh, and he just walked away from the sport. Uh, but, you know, and also he certainly joined Kenny um, in integrating the NFL with the Rams. And then he later was among the players to integrate the Canadian Football League when he went up to Calgary after being cut by the Rams. So a tremendous, tremendous history uh, there as well. Uh, Jackie Robinson, maybe the greatest athlete of, in American history. Um, you know, you look at what, you know, had, had there been a 1940 Olympics, he probably would have been the American, the gold medal winner in the long jump, uh, you know, had the. Uh, records, uh, NCAA records, junior college records in the long jump, leading basketball scorer in the Pacific Coast Conference for UCLA. Uh, and ironically, his worst sport at UCLA was baseball. He hit like 097 at baseball and, and, and struggled a lot. I mean, when he could get on with walks and whatnot, he, he stole a lot of bases. But uh, yeah, it was really his worst sport. Uh, and then, of course, football, he was a second team All-America in, uh, in 1940 uh, with the Bruins as well. So uh, yeah, remarkable. Remark. Ned Matthews, the quarterback on that 39 team, played with a, with the inaugural San Francisco 49ers. So, yeah, there were some outstanding players on on uh, those teams that Kenny was a part of. And those those yearbooks hold a lot of great history. They do. They do. And, you know, it's it's just been such an honor to even just have them, you know, have them in my possession and, you know, going through them. And it's, it's just been great. And again, you know, the, that 1940 team is just such a fascinating, I'd say a moment in time, moment in history. As you mentioned, you know, you got actors, you got professional athletes, you got people who truly are trailblazers all on one team playing, you know, one or a couple sports. Yeah, it was a remarkable time. And of course, it was just a remarkable time around that team. You looked at, uh, you know, so many of the, the F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, you know, Bing Crosby, people like that were regulars at UCLA games. Joe E. Brown, I mean, F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, said that his favorite athlete was Kenny Washington. I mean, it's just remarkable to, to, you know, to see uh, the support they had. And, of course, that last game of Kenny's college career, they set a college football record with 103,300 fans, uh, all of whom gave Kenny a remarkable standing ovation as he left the field. Um, yeah, it, it, was, it was a very special time. You know, I hope one day it has a it has a movie script in the in the writing. You know, well, it's in the works. It's it is it is in the works. I don't know how much I'm at liberty to say, but contracts have been signed and it is in the works. And, so I'm you know, excited about that. I think it's something that that Kenny's legacy deserves. You know, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. So if people want to find this book. What's it called? Where can they get it? And uh, where can they reach out to you if they you know, want to learn more about you and your career? Walking Alone is the name of the title. And uh, it's the title of the book, Roman and Littlefield, the publisher. Like most books these days, Amazon's a, an easy landing spot to find it. But uh, Barnes & Noble online uh, also uh, has it. Uh, Roman Littlefield's uh, direct uh, website is, is Roman, R-O-W-M-A-N, Dot com. Uh, me, I am uh, on X uh, or Twitter for those of you who are a little like me, a little slow to embrace change uh, and Facebook at Wrighton, W-R-I-T-I-N guy, G-U-I uh, is where I can be found. And yeah, I love to visit with with uh, like minded sports fans. Uh, it'd be great fun.
Well, Dan, I want to, again, appreciate the time. I'll make sure to link all that in the show notes. Just thanks again for being here, and I really appreciate it. Oh, no, thank you. This was a lot of fun. I'd love to wish we could chat for hours and hours. I, I think we probably could, so who knows, one day by phone or whatnot. But uh, you're great. Thanks for the opportunity. It was a real treat to be with you. Peggy Dealey. That was another fun episode of Into the Unknown. I truly appreciate you taking the time to listen. And if it provides you any value or entertainment, I would love if you shared it with others, liked, subscribed, and really just helped the podcast grow. Again, tell a friend, tell a foe, just anyone who might enjoy hearing some stories of people's own journeys and what got them to where they are today. Till next time.